my advice to law students, first of all, would be pay attention in legal research and writing because the skills you acquire in that class, they're not just going to inform your performance on bar exam questions. They'll also improve your performance in doctrinal and whatever clinical work you do. And that will help as well. It's the acquisition of skills that we are really encouraging students to develop so they can show us on the exam. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. My blog, May It Please the Court, is back up and running in the new year, so check it out. And also be on the lookout for my new book. It's called Bad Decisions, 10 Famous Trials That Changed History. Well, the first bar exam was administered in oral form in Delaware Colony in 1783. And then more than 100 years later in 1885, Massachusetts became the first state to employ a written version of the bar exam. We've come a long way since then, and over time, the bar examination process has become more standardized, but there's no one test. One example of a standardized test is the uniform bar examination. It was created, well, maybe a long time ago, but was authorized in 2011, first administered that year by Missouri and North Dakota. It's been since adopted by some 37 United States jurisdictions out of a possible 56 the American Bar Association, wait a minute, 56? How did that happen? Anyway, the American Bar Association endorsed the UBE at its 2016 mid-year meeting. However, some of the largest legal markets, including California and Florida and Louisiana, have not yet adopted the uniform bar exam. So what's next in all these standardized texts? Well, according to the National Conference of Bar Examiners website, the new next-gen bar exam is set to debut in July of 2026, and it will, quote, test a broad range of foundational lawyering skills, utilizing a focused set of clearly identified fundamental legal concepts and principles needed in today's practice of law. The exam will reflect many of the key changes that law schools are making today, building on the successes of clinical legal education programs, alternative dispute resolution programs, and legal writing and analysis programs, unquote. So will the transition from a standardized test like UBE to NextGen be an easy one? And what can law students and faculty members expect? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be discussing the NextGen bar exam with one of the committee members who helped write it. We're going to explore the specifics of the exam. We're going to talk about how law students and faculty can transition to preparing for the new exam, and what students can expect from the exam in 2026. And to help us better understand this issue, we're joined today by Dennis Prieto. He's an associate professor and reference librarian at Rutgers Law School. He is an internationally recognized expert in law student information literacy and also publishes on bilingual English-Spanish legal reference sources. Dennis served on the National Conference of Bar Examiners Next-Gen Content Scope Committee, and is a member of the NextGen Tasks and Rubrics Advisory Committee. Welcome to the show, Dennis. 
Well, thank you very much, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. Dennis is not very often, and I don't think that we've ever interviewed a librarian on our podcast. So let's get a little bit about your background and what led you to your current role as a reference librarian. Boy, goodness. Well, you know, my career is very strange. All, all of our careers are all unique and idiosyncratic. I actually started in poetry writing. And I went to the University of Iowa and took a master's degree there, uh, their uh, creative writing program, and found myself teaching all over the world, in South Korea in particular, and, you know, enjoying life, but wanting to make a little bit more than I was making as a teacher. So I went back to law school, and it didn't take me a long time to realize that practicing law was not really going to be my forte. My skill was research. I was finding the cases that the professors were embedding in the problems in ways that other people weren't. So I decided to listen to that. And instead of practice, after I graduated Iowa Law in 2001, uh, enrolled at the Graduate School for Library and Information Science, as it was known back then, at the University of Illinois. So I've had the real fortune of attending two number one ranked programs in this country. Uh, Iowa, of course, is, was 23 at the time, uh, the law school, but the Writers' Workshop and then Illinois' Library School at the time are highly, highly ranked. And I got to see some of the interesting features of well-run academic systems and thought, you know, maybe I should become a law librarian. I remember in a law school that a lot of the professors were a little bit disgruntled that they were in Iowa City, not in Chicago. A lot of the students were worried that they weren't going to be in the top 50% of the class to get the job in Chicago. But the librarians were really happy with what they were doing and were also really, really helpful. And so that that launched me towards us, you know, getting the dual credential that you need at an ABA accredited school to be a law librarian. But at the end of library school, I was studying with Lisa Jansky Hitchcliffe, and she was a big proponent of testing information literacy. And she was letting me know and letting all of us know that these tests were coming first through ACRL and that understanding on a large scale how well students uh, were able to use and make productive use of information systems was going to be a big question in academia in the future. And, you know, so I got to Rutgers. I started doing all kinds of other work, the uh, legal dictionaries, and I was able to present at a couple conferences. And then the uh, NCB just took volunteers saying anybody who's interested in uh, helping with the next-gen bar exam, let us know, because they wanted input from practitioners as well as from academics. And so I signed up and got recruited into first the content scope committee, helping to define that legal research should be on the bar exam. First of all, that took a little bit of convincing, which is a shame because, you know, I mean, law is such a super information rich career. It's such a, the practice of law is so dependent upon information that it was clear to me that there were going to be problems if we don't start tracking this. So I put together a group of law librarians. We articulated the principles and standards for law student information literacy for the American Association of Law Librarians. 
And a lot of this has really just taken off from there with people understanding that now that we have a list essentially of what we want our graduates to be able to do, we can work towards, you know, bringing content, informational, instructional content, I should say, to that audience filling a need. Right. Well, that's a really interesting background. I'll, I'll admit that I also went to the University of Iowa, graduated go, a little bit. Guys. Yep. Yep. A little bit earlier than you, 1987. And uh, also had the opportunity to go to the Iowa Writers School as a consequence of going to the law school and learn how oh, to write fantastic. a little yeah. bit better. So I, I didn't write poetry, but certainly learned to write a little bit of fiction. And your background is really interesting, but let me give you first a little bit of uh, bragging rights about Iowa. Sixth rank public school, so oh, yeah. public law school. So it's not that far down the line, but it was a great education when I went, and I'm really proud of it. So, Dennis, let's get into the bar exams. We started out with, you know, 50 different bar exams that drove everybody crazy. Let's talk first about the history and what happened with the uniform bar exam. How did that come into existence? You know, I'm just dealing with the leftovers of that. Um, and again, it was an attempt to, as you noted, you know, try to wrestle the problem of 50 different bar exams. And what the next gen is really, quite frankly, it's, I can see it as a simple updating. It's a big shift, Dennis. It's a big shift from the UBE and even in the law schools. The big shift is but it's also adding in practical skills. Well, that's what's really, that's what makes it a better measure, I'm going to say, first of all. But, you know, a lot of what makes it a big shift, the necessity for the big shift, is that the world of practice has changed since the UBE was first introduced. And a lot of that, again, has to do with access to information. And a lot of that also has to do with accommodating the information that we have access to. If you had mentioned something like a chat GPT style simple program to the folks who were uh, thinking about the UBE, they would have thought that you were stepping out of a science fiction novel. And this is where we live now. It's a completely different world. And, uh, you know, updating high-stakes certification exams is pretty normal and pretty regular. It happens a lot in a lot of other professions, in medical professions, in accounting. They keep a real close eye on their certification exams, and they update them regularly. You know, the UBE had been... I don't know that we can say that it had really been updated. It had been kind of poked and prodded. It had been added a little bit here, taken a little bit there. Some stuff has been put back in. And, you know, I mean, it's not a wholesale new approach, which really is a little bit, you know, a little bit, to be honest, our fault. The NCBE probably should have been, you know, doing more to update than it did. But this is how these things happen. Now, you're talking about the NCBE. That means the National Conference of Bar Examiners, right? That's right. Yeah, they're the ones who uh, ran the UBE, who run the multi-state now, and who run the next-gen bar exam, too. Who is the National Conference of Bar Examiners? Who's on that board? Well, the board I'm less familiar with than the people that I've been working there. Beth Kennedy has been doing a really fantastic job in shepherding this entire project, bringing it to light. 
Um, so NCBE, as you know, has been a pretty stalwart fixture on the legal certification scene since the 1950s. Right. There's a lot of judges on it. And there's a lot of uh, lawyers and law professors. What's been the reaction of the law professors to the next-gen bar exam? You know, all of the people that I've been talking to, well, first of all, there's nobody who really likes the uh, multi-state right now. Everybody has an issue with it. So that makes people a little more, you know, a little more amenable to the notion of redoing the exam. Everybody also agrees that including skills is long overdue. When you think about how a lawyer interacts with the client, the client doesn't know a pleading from any other writ. The client only knows how well was I handled. And so having a test that's going to measure test takers' abilities to resolve relationship issues and manage client issues, you know, that's a new thing for certification in the law. And I think it's only an improvement. Is part of this new exam open book? Well, so the library is going to be very similar to the UBE-style library in the exams. You're going to get a set of information. I've been trying to push people to hand out way more information, and it's all going to be on your laptop now. That's one of the one of the easy things about the new exam is that you bring your own laptop, and they will run the test on it for you. So you don't really have to do anything in terms of professional investments that you've already made. Now, is this multiple choice or is it essay? How, is, how does a bar exam work? Both. It's both. It's both. There's multiple choice questions and then there are essay questions, right? And you're given a set of information, sometimes with each essay question, sometimes to cover several essay questions. And I don't really, I don't think you're allowed to bring anything into the exam other than your watch and yourself. So... So what goes into redoing the exam? How do you guys pick apart the old exam? What problems did you see and how did you fix them? So there were a number of problems that we had to deal with, one of which actually was simply the length. People in the NCBE thought that the length of the exam was simply too long, that by the time you're done with it, the results you're getting are not indicative of anything because... You know, you've just spent the last two days writing these exams. So there's an exhaustion question right there. Is it fair for students? A lot of what we were really looking at was basic fairness for all students, too. Is this something that is going to put an imposition on a student, or is this something that everybody's going to be able to access to? That's another one of the reasons for making it accessible on each test taker's laptop so that they can already have the basic access features set up and available to them. And that was another thing, too, right? We knew that there were going to, the exams were going to be, have to be given in different modes to accommodate ADA issues. I mean, all of the pieces kind of came together at the necessary time to really spur NCBE into launching a revision for the exam. And my gut tells me that what happens is that as they started launching the initial revisions to the exam way back in like the 
early 2000s, I think, was when that dates back to. They realized that it was a huger endeavor than they might have signed up for and began expanding the project. And what they've done is they have consulted literally hundreds of psychometricians. There's a whole field where you simply translate concepts into test questions and answers. And there's a way to measure that. It's called psychometrics. And um, I, you know, got exposed to some of those folks at Illinois when I was doing my library degree there. And part of what's taken the project so long is to fully analyze and assess all of the problems with the old test, which was a three-day test, and then trying to cut it down into a two-day test, yet still add these layers of measuring skills. And what we're doing is we're looking at skills as the articulators for the foundational concepts and principles. So it's not just that we're teaching skills. We're also teaching doctrine, civil pro contracts, torts, and whatnot. But you have to use your skills to show on the exam that you understand the doctrine. Right. Well, Dennis, I need to interrupt you for a moment because at this time we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by Dennis Preto. He's an associate professor and reference librarian at Rutgers Law School. We've been discussing the next-gen bar exam. Now, Dennis, this isn't coming out until 2026, right? Right. Well, again, this has already been 10, 15 years of development. So, yeah, 2026, I think, is a reasonable outcome, is a reasonable date, given, uh, you know, the decades that have already gone into this work. And, you know, there's already schools of states, excuse me, that have agreed to adopt the next gen exam, too. Most lately, um Arizona, uh, as well as Kentucky, Nebraska, Iowa, Connecticut, Maryland, Missouri. I mean, they're signing up for something that's not happening until 2026 later, largely because these states have a history of working 
with the NCBE for uh, uh, the multi-state, for the UBE. And, uh, you know, they have faith in the project, which, you know, everybody who's been lucky enough to be a part of it has and shares. You know, there's been, you mentioned in the articles that you've written about it, there's been some committee member articles about the next-gen bar exam. You mentioned that there was issue with legal academia about the difference between teaching doctrine and teaching skills, and there's been some significant disagreement there. Can you explain what's going on? Well, what happens is, and wherever this happens, and this happens largely in places like academia, where the outcomes are not super financially critical, but therefore mean a lot to the people who are involved. And I just saw uh, the ends of this at my school, and we've kind of moved on from this as well. But what you have is you have professors fighting over resources. Clinical professors saying, we need this much to keep the doors open at the clinic, right? Doctrinal professors saying, I need this much to continue with my research. And, uh, you know, anytime you get people fighting over resources, well, that's kind of what happens. And I think it's happened in a different, you know, slightly different flavor at most public law schools, right? Um, again, because the competition for resources is uh, often keen. And unfortunately, there have been administrations in the past that feel the best way to get the best work out of your faculty is to make them compete for resources. So, again, it has not been an issue at Rutgers for a long time. And we've done a lot actually there in terms of making career activities much more accessible to people as well. So the bar examiners are basically telling those schools that are teaching only doctrinal classes, the standard torts and contracts and Civ Pro, the first year set of classes and so on, that get with the program and start teaching skills because the bar exam is going to leave them behind, right? Well, in as much as the bar examiners care about any of the other schools, I suppose that's correct. They're really focused on the exam. And they're really focused on making sure that the exam is measuring what it's going to be measuring. And this is because the country wants lawyers who have legal skills. And we've never been testing skills before. Tell us about one of those skills that's going to be tested on the bar exam. Am I going to have to take a statute and apply it to a problem and figure out an issue? Well, that would be the idea, would it not? That is the practice of law and the aspiration of the next gen exam is to be as to mimic practice as much as possible. So again, for an essay question, you might get a hypo, you'll probably get statutory language, regulatory language, cases, there may be some like news stories thrown in there that may or may not reveal facts that are significant to spotting issues in the hypo, right? That's a uh, part of research. I mean, research. So here's part of the thing, at least from my perspective. Research is not simply looking up on a screen. That's what we think research is because that's the activity that we end up doing in research. But while we're doing that, effective researchers are thinking critically about the information that's presented to them 
are wondering what's not being presented and are already figuring out how to lessen that second quantity, right? How to make what's not being presented smaller and smaller. But what we want to do with the next gen bar exam is we want to take a little measure of that and see, well, in terms of the legal research question, you know, how many of our test takers are able to effectively find first and then arrange the information in a way that makes sense in an essay exam? Well, Dennis, I've got the quintessential law student question for you coming up, but it's time to take another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm back with Dennis Preto. He's the Associate Professor and Reference Librarian at Rutgers Law School. And Dennis has promised, here's that question. What do law students need to do to get ready to take this new bar exam? You know, here we are talking to the guy who wrote it. So give us the clues. Well, I didn't write it, unfortunately. I was just one of many people. You know, a project like this is a huge endeavor. But my advice to law students, first of all, would be pay attention in legal research and writing. Because that's a class that, you know, your performance in legal research and writing, or the rather the skills you acquire in that class, they're not just going to inform your performance on bar exam questions, but they'll help. They'll also improve your performance in doctrinal and whatever clinical work you do. And that will help as well. It's the acquisition of skills that we are really encouraging students to develop so they can show us on the exam what they know, because that's the point of an exam. Show me what you know. So I would first say legal research and writing. Second of all, I would definitely say that you just try to get clinical experience if you can. Having actual pre-certification legal experience will show people what the practice of law is like, at least in their own clinics. And again, the next-gen bar exam seeks to mimic practice. So the more often you get yourself into practice situations, the more often you find yourself doing work for practice, that's where you're going to acquire your skills. Dennis, I can't agree with you more. When I was at Iowa, I took legal clinic classes from Professor Barbara Schwartz. And under her tutelage, I did 15 trials before a judge. I did a jury trial. I did an an appellate brief to the Iowa Supreme Court. The legal clinic experience I got at school back in the late 80s was, or mid-80s rather, was unbelievable and really affected my law career. I can't emphasize your advice enough, even as a practicing lawyer all these years. 
Well, you'll you'll be happy to know that Barbara Storch was still there in the late 90s, and I learned all about immigration law. Well, half from her, half from Bill Hing in my uh, internship in California, but she was fantastic. Well, you know, it's time to ask a couple devil's advocate questions here, you know, and as an old lawyer myself, you know, I've been in practice almost 40 years, and I'm admitted in four states and took two bar exams, so I've sat for six days uh, bar exams and three in Iowa and three in California. And I really don't want to hear that you're giving away my certificates to somebody who's only taken two days worth of a bar exam. What do you say to that? Well, I would say, what did that third day of the exam get you? The certificate. <laughs> the certificate. But I mean, that like if it hadn't been there, you know, would you have missed it? No, I wouldn't have missed it. I certainly not. Right. It's, you know, it's the same old question, right? People are like, well, I had to suffer and walk two miles uphill every day to go to school. And why can't the kids do the same? And you know what? Maybe it's good that they don't have to do the same. Maybe it's good that we have sidewalks. They still get to school. They still do their work, you know, and that's, I think, what's really important. Is it really significant to be testing skills at this point? Because you know, really having gone through three years worth of just almost purely doctrinal classes, it really does affect the way you think. Well, it really does. And again, I'm always in favor of exercising, developing and exercising those skills at the earliest moment possible and for as much time as you can. I would never suggest that a student go through a law school program and not at least do some kind of clinical work. I completely agree. What do you think the impact on legal education is going to be? Are you going to have, to, are we going to see a dramatic increase in practical classes and legal clinics in law schools now? Well, I certainly hope so. So I've already recommended that to my school, Rutgers. And Rutgers, as you know, led the way in clinical education for many, many years. Right. It was started there um, as a result of the Newark uprising. And I think that the more engaged you make the law school with the public, the more opportunity you're presenting your students with chances to make a positive impact. And so, you know, yeah, the clinics, uh, Newark has a real sense of ownership of the law school clinics. They do not just engaging with the society, but also giving the students a chance to work with those folks and getting experience in representation. I mean, I just, I, I just don't understand why you would go to law school and not engage in that. And that's what the exam is aiming to measure. That's what we want to see. We want to see the skills that people bring to the exam from the entirety of their law school career. We're not really interested in, uh, you know, the parole evidence rule, per se. It doesn't come up too many times in trial, to be honest with you. You know, I, I've tried a lot of cases, and I think I've only used the parole evidence rule. Mm, not at all. I'll tell you this, Craig. That comment came up so many times during our initial content scope uh, conversations. I mean, I can't go into the details of those, but there were so many things that we pulled off of UBEs that were just like, we don't do this anymore. And so, you know, we're really trying to make it resemble and reflect current practice. 
Well, I think so. Sounds like it. Well, Dennis, it's just about time to wrap up our program. So I want to ask you, what questions should I have asked you that I haven't? Well, actually, you clearly done your research on this. And you've asked me particular you asked me a few questions that were beyond me, for example. So, but I guess in terms of the next gen bar exam, I would just want to emphasize that access and access to users with multiple abilities is really part of the focus as well as connecting test takers with the content of the material. And uh, we really have paid a lot of attention on developing a tool that should be pretty seamless to take as an exam. And where would our listeners go, Dennis, to find out more about this new next-gen bar exam? So I've got the webpage right open right here. And you can just go to Google and, and Google next-gen bar exam. This page will come up. And it is nextgenbarexam.ncbex.org. And uh, the NCBE, National Council of Bar Examiners, they're, you know, hosting this. And you can see exactly what's been going on. And there's even sample questions. So if you'd like to know what kind of question you should be preparing for, I see already like 18 different question sets. Great. Well, Dennis, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Well, the pleasure has been mine, but thank you for asking me. And uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Let me tell you what I think about this topic. I taught legal writing at Chapman University, and a lot of the law students, especially when I was in law school, kind of looked down at legal writing. And to hear Dennis now say that legal writing is going to become very critical in passing the bar exam, that thrills me to no end. I learned a lot in law school. I learned a lot taking writing classes from Brian Garner after I left law school. He's the guy who writes the Black's Legal Dictionary now and teaches some very precise and wonderful writing classes for lawyers. So I think it's very important to learn these skills. I learned a lot in law school myself, and I've benefited throughout my career from that education in law school. Sure, there's a requirement to learn all the doctrinal classes, the basics that we have all taken in first year and second year, but now is the time to get out there and learn some of the skills if you're a student and get moving on this because you're going to be tested on it. Anyway, that's it for Craig's rant on today's topic. Let me know what you think. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.